Hello, my name's Joel Townsend and you're listening to episode two of In That Case. This is a podcast in which I'm trying to explore some of the most interesting and important public interest cases that we've seen in Australia. I'm talking to some of the people involved in the cases to learn a little bit about the legal issues and the context and also hear a bit about the personal stories, how people were impacted by being involved in that litigation. So episode one was on the case of Dr. Muhammad Hanif back in 2007. I spoke to Stephen Kime, who's a barrister from Queensland, and you can find that episode on the website, which is www.inthatcasepodcast.com. And you can also find the podcast on iTunes. Thanks to all the people who have listened. I'm really pleased with how many people have downloaded the first episode. Um, I'm hoping you'll enjoy this one as well, and I'm hoping you'll subscribe on iTunes. If you really wanted to curry favour, you could um, put up a review or rate the podcast on iTunes. I understand that if you rate the podcast, it does tend to help people uh, find it a little more easily. Thanks a lot to everyone who's provided um, support for this podcast, especially Um, Nick and Dave and Rowan, who were responsible for uh, substantially improving episode one to the uh, extent that it was uh, improved from what I originally trotted out. And thanks also to the um, lawyers and participants in litigation who have spoken to me so far. Um, I've got a a couple of other shows uh, in the pipeline, have had some terrific conversations, and I'm really looking forward to the podcasts to come. But I'm excited about talking to you today about the Kiowa case. I'm an administrative lawyer and this is one of the biggest public law cases in the last 40 years in Australia. And it really has shaped how governments go about making decisions about our lives. The story begins with Jason Kiowa coming to Australia from Tonga in September 1981 and he was coming originally for three months to do a business course. He had an entry permit and he extended the entry permit after being here for a few months. And then in March 1982, just before his entry permit was about to run out, a big cyclone hit Tonga, Cyclone Isaac, and it particularly affected Vava'u, which is the island in the northern part of Tonga where his family's from. So Jason overstayed his visa. He worked in a factory. He remitted money to Tonga for his family. He moved from the house uh, where he had been living and he had a daughter. And then in July 1983, immigration authorities finally caught up with him and he was arrested and he was detained. And then began the legal saga that we're going to be talking about today. So Jason sought to extend his entry permit and the minister refused his application for an extension and the minister decided to deport him under the relevant provision of the Migration Act, Section 18. So in considering Jason's case, a bureaucrat in the Department of Immigration Uh, put a submission up to the Minister for Immigration. And there are two features of that submission which are really important to this case. So the first is this. 
The submission raised concerns about the fact that Jason had been working with Tongan community members in Melbourne, and especially it raised concerns about the fact that he'd been working with Tongans in Australia who were not on valid entry permits, and the suggestion was that that showed a willingness on his part to circumvent the law. The second important feature of that submission to the Minister was that it made no mention of uh, Jason's daughter, who was, by virtue of having been born in Australia, an Australian citizen. There's a key concept in Australian public law called natural justice. When an administrative decision maker, when the government is making a decision about you and it has some adverse information and you're not on notice of that information, then if the decision maker owes you natural justice, the decision maker has to give you notice of that information and an opportunity to comment on it. In 1977, in a case called Salimi and McKellar, the High Court of Australia held that the deportation power in the Migration Act was not subject to a general duty of natural justice. And in coming to that view, the High Court basically approached the question by asking whether natural justice was implied on a proper interpretation of the statute before them. So no presumption that natural justice applies. You look at the face of the statute and work out whether providing natural justice in respect of that decision was Parliament's intention. In Jason Kiwa's case, he made two key arguments in his legal challenge to the Minister's decision to deport him. Uh, first, he argued that the Minister failed to give proper consideration to the impacts of deportation uh, on Jason's daughter. She's an Australian citizen. Uh, she has interests in staying in Australia. At the same time, uh, she has an interest in um, staying with her parents and if they're being deported then she loses some of the benefits of her Australian citizenship. So that's one argument that that was a set of considerations that the Minister failed to take properly into account. But the key argument from our perspective is that uh, in Jason's case natural justice meant that he should have been allowed to respond to the suggestions that he was assisting Tongans here in Australia without an entry permit to circumvent Australian law. He and his lawyers argued that there were legislative changes that had occurred between 1977 and 1985 when his case ultimately reached the High Court uh, that meant that natural justice could be implied to be a condition of the exercise of that deportation power. So Jason pursued his case through the courts and ultimately to the High Court in 1985. As a side note, it's interesting to um, realise that that was a very turbulent year for the High Court. That was the year that Justice Lionel Murphy of the High Court uh, was off the bench for much of the year. He was uh, awaiting trial on corruption charges. He was convicted of one of those charges that... Um, conviction was set aside by the High Court uh, later that year and then again he was waiting 
awaiting trial. So there were only six judges on, on the court and five of them sat in Jason's case. And four of the justices held that Jason should prevail essentially on the basis of the natural justice point that he was arguing. And this is where we come to this key principle which was articulated in this case, which has continued to have a real impact in Australian law in the years since. And it's <clears throat> best captured in the judgment of Justice Mason at paragraph 31. And this is a much cited uh, paragraph in his judgment where he said, and I quote, the law has now developed to a point where it may be accepted that there is a common law duty to act fairly in the sense of according procedural fairness, subject only to the clear manifestation of a contrary statutory intention. So the position in Salemi and McKellar doesn't prevail. You don't look at the face of the statute with no presumption. You look at the face of the statute with a presumption that government is going to have to give you a chance to comment on adverse information unless the parliament has clearly manifested an intention that that not be the case. It's a bit of a technical point, but it has been absolutely critical in Australian public law in ensuring greater fairness in administrative decision-making. So Jason won on that point. His case was remitted to the minister for reconsideration, and ultimately he got his entry permit and he has remained in Australia. He went into um, the ministry as a minister in the United Church in Australia and he, as you'll hear, had a long career in the ministry. I spoke both to Jason Kiwa and to the solicitor who acted for him, Michael Clothier, and I started by asking Jason a little bit about the background to his case. I want to just um, to start by hearing a little bit about your time in Tonga before you came to Australia. Yes. You came to Australia in uh, 1981. Yes. Mm. Right. So I uh, I was working um, for the government tourist office as a public relations officer and uh, um, having studied at the University of South Pacific, went back to Tonga and taught for a year and then changed job in 1977. Uh, and, and so working for the tourism department and working as a radio announcer part-time from uh, 78 to 81 until I came here. I came to continue study um, on public relations uh, and tourism. And then um, there was a cyclone called Isaac in 19. 82 and so my dad said the house has been blown so um, can you try and stay there in Australia and work because that's uh, that's how you know most Tongan families uh, get their house built if they've got families overseas so I then went to the immigration department to inquire about staying here change my visa and so forth 
you had initially had a three-month entry permit and then and you extended that. And then I, I read a little about Cyclone Isaac, so it peaked in, in March 1982 and there were six people killed. And I, one report I read indicated around 45,000 people um, homeless. Um, where were your family and what did they say about the impact of the cyclone on them? Yeah. Our house was blown down. So I actually had to get the photo of the house when the um, case went in court and they, yeah, it was blown down. Yeah, quite a lot of damage. Uh, luckily, none of our you know, relatives died. But uh, yeah, we, we lived in the outer islands in the northern island called Vavau, uh, which is like uh, um, about an hour flight from Nukolofa, the main island. So yeah, um, it's struggling. People struggle there uh, with all sorts of things. So uh, that's that's why it was kind of important for me to hear my dad saying that and to try and find out a way of saying here. Did you have uh, brothers and sisters living with them there? Yes, uh, I had all my siblings there. I was the only one who came out in 1981. Um, and two of my brothers were there in the property um, and two sisters were in the main island in Tumatapu. From 82 to 83, I, I had inquired to the immigration about my extension. They said it, it's, uh, it's going to take a while. But I started working, so I uh, started working because I we I needed to help my dad. So, and then we, I found this job in uh, Berlin, and then we started to move around. In fact, it wasn't the first job. Uh, I had a, a job before that, just for three months. But the one in Berlin was the one that uh, carried me like over over a year, for two years that time when I was arrested. So we moved to a little one bedroom flat and, and lived there. And that's when, I guess, the immigration lost track of me um, because we we'd moved out from my cousin's house um, until I was arrested in July. I think it was twenty fifth of July, two uh, nineteen eighty three. Jason spoke to me a little about his experience of being taken to the detention centre and his brief time in immigration detention. So as soon as we got to the office, they said, well, we'll take you to detention centre. And I said, well, I've got a wife and a kid on flat. You know, um, can we go by them, let them know and pick up some clothes? And they said, no, we'll go straight to detention centre and we can bring from there. So they took me straight. Um, and so I rang my, my wife, Lena, from there, from detention. It was such a shocking experience because um, I've never experienced this before. So so they knew, so they came with our daughter to visit me in the afternoon because it was morning they picked me up. So, yeah, a bit of a shock and tears, and then they had to leave. So. Fortunately, at that time, they didn't keep the whole family in detention, so I was the only one detained. So so they came with some clothes for me, but it was that night that I 
so lost, you know, I'm shocked to the system. I had a good job in Tonga. I didn't intend to stay, but now I'm caught. So a shame of everything comes to the system. So I went uh, the following morning, or before the following morning, I, I, I had, there was a Bible there, having my story I told, that I wrestled with praying to God because I had kind of uh, drifted away from my attending church and being a good uh, Christian attending church every Sunday to, yeah, because I was still uh, fairly young. So I, I saw a Bible was left there in, in the cell. So I read it and read Psalm 37 and came to my mind that I should say to God, sorry, if you try and get me to stay here, uh, work for you kind of thing. Jason knew he needed a lawyer, uh, so he tried to find one. He went to legal aid, and that's how he came to work with Michael Clothier. You'll hear each of them talk a little bit about how they came to find one another. Next day, uh, I came to my mind that I talked to the warden. Um, so I asked him, do you know any uh, solicitor? Uh, he said, do you have any money? I said, no. He said, oh, we've got legal aid, but they, like he said, they're, they're not the best solicitor. Like, I said, well, just get me. Uh, so he gave me a number to ring um, and the name. So I rang and the name, the person wasn't there. So directed me to Michael Clothier. Well, it was back in uh, 1983. Uh... July 83, I think, that I first met Jason. I was, um, I was the legal aid duty lawyer in those days, and I, uh, I used to go down to the city courts every morning and see all the people in the cells and apply for bail and do all that sort of stuff. And I was given the extra job of, of going to the detention centre. So um, uh, my background was in crime in those days, and uh, I was sort of a, a, yes, I was probably a, a Dennis Denuto of administrative law, I suppose you'd call it. I saw Jason um, uh, in the usual way. I mean, um, uh, in those days, uh, the minister tried to downplay the, the prison aspects of immigration detention. He used to call it a hotel with bars and things like that um, because it wasn't considered... Um, politically astute to to um, uh, to detain people who'd overstayed their visas um, uh, it, it didn't carry the stigma that it did, does these days um, so um, uh, Jason had um, he was told he'd overstayed his visa and he told me he'd done it because um, uh, the cyclone had recently hit Tonga while he was here on holidays and uh, uh, he couldn't go back. There was nothing to go back to. And so they just stayed on. And in those days, under the... This was pre-codification days. It was the old 1958 Migration Act. Um, the minister had absolute discretion whether to grant or refuse a visa 
that the word absolute was actually in the act. <laughs> um, uh, so there wasn't a lot of immigration law per se. Uh, the few cases that got up uh, were mainly about the uh, uh, the dictation test. Um, uh, one was about an amnesty uh, to the grey, uh, a guy who had been a member of the Grey Wolves in Turkey. I think um, uh, he'd taken a case to the High Court and the High Court had said, uh, well, uh, the nature of the immigration power is such that it doesn't attract the rules of natural justice. Because when I saw Jason, I, I went back to the office and I wrote uh, a two-page letter to the minister. I pulled it out. Uh, I've still got a copy of it here. This, this proves I'm the Dennis Donato of immigration law. The, 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 the second page had one, uh, had one paragraph saying... Um, Oh, I'd said during the time he's been here, he's fully integrated into Australian society. His family has lived in the same block of flats for over 12 months. They've even purchased a motor vehicle on time payments. And here it comes. Mr. Kala has been on the executive committee of the Tongan Christian Fellowship and has done much in this regard. Um, he's also a member of the Immigration and Ethnic Committee for the United Church and only recently was in discussions with your department concerning the difficulties of illegal immigrants from Tonga. Now, that sentence um, was used in briefing the minister uh, it was twisted to say uh, Mr Kiawa has been assisting other illegal immigrants um, and it was regarded, uh, it was put to the minister as an adverse uh, matter rather than uh, what I was saying in my letter, saying that it was a, a commendable thing for him to be doing it In those years there were more detainees, like there were more times who I heard being arrested. So I, I went to see them. I went to help them um, and tell them what I did. So they started to do the same thing, but the, their problem was they couldn't speak uh, as, like, as, I, I, as I did. So I became like an interpreter. So I interpreted for them. So I visited the detention centre um, quite often uh, and therefore in the court case itself you probably read that the immigration uh, claim that I became, um, I, I tried to circumvent the law by helping people to like run away or something and that wasn't true. That passion carried with me through the years because, uh, you know, cut a long story short, I, I actually ended up going to ministry and ordained in 1990 and, and then minister and then became moderator in 2006. And one of the things I did as a moderator was to go to the prisons. Jason, Kira and his family were involved in litigation which was both lengthy and very uncertain. They faced potential deportation and that put them in the position of having to make some really difficult life choices. The, the team carried me through, right through. Um, Peter Rose is another one. Um, I think Peter was the, the barrister. Um, Ron was a QC. And I think Peter Rose was the one that worked with Michael Tobia uh, with the team right through. 
And what was that experience like? I mean, public law litigation obviously doesn't involve the taking of evidence on the way through. It's legal argument about an administrative decision. So it is a series of arguments about something which is absolutely critical to your life, um, but it happens at a high level of abstraction Mm. and you don't have direct involvement. No. And I saw all I did was to continue my commitment to God um, and had contact with Michael. So several times when the decision was that that we our appeal was turned down, then it was on the paper that our family would be deported. So Interpedia didn't bring some photos, um, kept photos over the newspapers of many times that we were going to be deported. And then Michael and the team appealed and then was kind of say no we have a chance to we stayed so I, I say probably five times over the three years that we were going to be deported when I was arrested she was already born and, and so it was a claim from the immigration department that we plan for her to be born well the fact of the matter is I think it was in the paper. Um, we actually went to have an abortion when Lena was pregnant. Um, so we went to this uh, GP in Bowen uh, because we, that time we stayed, we lived in, um, in Surrey Hills. So we said to him, look, we, 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 are, we don't have any papers, we're still waiting for our court case, but Lena is pregnant, we don't think can afford it or so maybe find a way of getting rid of the baby. So um, he was Christian, he was Christian GP, so he's Catholic as well. So he said, look, maybe you go and think about it again, then come back in six weeks. So we went and then when we came back, he, he said to us, look, it's now six weeks, the baby is growing. He, he was trying to lead us not to, in my opinion, not to have an abortion. So he said, oh, but we don't have any papers. He said, no, well, you can make the decision if, if you want to understand. So we eventually we said, Look, forget it, we won't abort. So when the immigration brought that as a, uh, a point against, you know, to say that we planned it. We actually went to the doctor to give us the evidence that we uh, that we actually didn't want the baby. So did you attend at the court hearings at, at all of the levels? Yeah. yeah, some. There was some, some hearing I, I went with Michael. Um, so I went with Lena and our daughter, but at some point they couldn't cope, and they couldn't cope, you know, with the many photos in the newspapers. So there are some points when I'm the only one who is in the paper as the family report. So. When you observed the High Court hearing, did you have a sense as to how well it had gone? Did you have a sense that you had it? <coughs> a good chance of success after that hearing? Um, 
Yeah, I guess uh, because I, 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 I heard or got, got the impression that it's now becoming a technical battle. For me, it was the vibe of the thing. We ha- there was this little Australian baby and it had been apparently given pretty short shrift. So we, sh- we issued proceedings in the federal uh, court. There was no federal circuit court in those days. Um, and uh, we complained that the baby had been denied natural justice uh, because we knew the High Court had ruled that uh, the parents are not entitled to natural justice. Uh, but we said, well, hold on, the baby is. Uh, it's an Australian citizen. Um, you, can't, uh, you, you can't use those powers against the baby. <laughs> well, um, I didn't know much, if anything, about administrative law in those days. All I knew was the vibe of the thing didn't, didn't sound too good to me, sounded unfair. Um, uh, I briefed um, uh, Ron Merkel uh, at that time and um, uh, basically our argument was you have to give the baby natural justice. This is an exception from what the High Court has said in the past and the only way you can give the baby natural justice is to give the parents natural justice. And that was basically our argument all the way up to the High Court and even there. Um, I think without that baby, uh, I don't think the court would have been prepared to um, look again at its, at its ruling on whether um, uh, the, the Migration Act attracted the rules of natural justice in making decisions about, uh, uh, about deportation. Did you have a sense of what your chances were on on the way up? I had. Uh, you see, I was one of Murphy's boys. You know, one of the early uh, legal aid lawyers, uh, federal lawyers, and we believed that um, there was no social ill in Australia that couldn't be cured if you could throw enough lawyers at it. Um, we actually believed that, <laughs> um, and for me, it was. Um, I, I was confident that that the the courts would give us uh, justice I, I had no idea how it would occur in the context of admin law because i'd never even studied admin law for my degree so i just knew that this was fundamentally unfair it, it's it's a feeling you get if you're a lawyer you know and, and you've studied law and i had great faith in the courts in those days and they didn't let me down they didn't let me down When the High Court handed down its judgment, it it remitted the matter to the Department of Immigration. Was there much further in the way of submissions to the Department before you got your extended entry permit? Yes. Uh, See, the the battle was between um, us and, and, and West, still West. I call it a miracle as well, that uh, within two months or a month of, of the decision, he was replaced by Herford, um, the Minister of Immigration, and Herford changed his mind. So West didn't, but the new minister did. I think you have a sense of how significant a case this is in the context of Australian public law. 
uh, I think, cited uh, several thousand times, at least in, in other cases. And it was um, this seminal decision when it um, came to this question of natural justice. And so the, the paragraph in the submission to the minister that was of particular concern to a number of the judges was this uh, this comment to the effect that your, and I'm quoting here, alleged concern for other Tongan illegal immigrants in Australia and active involvement with other persons who are seeking to circumvent Australia's immigration laws must be a source of concern. Chief Justice Gibbs rejected your argument on a number of bases, but one of the things that um, he said was that the fact of your involvement with those illegal immigrants was something that you were already on notice of and that um, you essentially had had a chance to put submissions about that. What did you ultimately say about that when you made submissions mm. to the minister? I said that I wasn't trying to uh, help them to circumvent the law. I was actually trying to help them to understand their rights. Um, like, I, I could only get what I communicated with the Legal Aid Commission because I was fairly good in English and could articulate. And I, I, I said to them, that's what I was doing. I, I was actually interpreting uh, what they're really thinking and the, the truth of their stories. It's an, it's an interesting parallel to the Minister for Immigration's recent comment about lawyers being un-Australian for assisting people to avoid being returned to offshore processing countries. This idea that enabling people to exercise their rights is something to be decried or avoided. Yeah. So... Uh, that's a, as I say, a very sort of significant decision in the in the history of Australian um, public law. Um, you went on, as you've said, to have a career in the ministry, and one of the things that you've done is you're a moderator of the United Church Synod of Victoria, Victoria and Tasmania. Yeah, yes. And uh, Sir Ronald Wilson, who was on the bench, yes. one of the five judges on the bench for your mm. case retired from the bench later in the 1980s to become president of the Uniting Church, and you had a bit to do with him. Yes. I, I eventually met him in person in an in assembly, I think it was in uh, Adelaide, uh, a few years after that. And he, he was so happy. He, you know, he's a small man, but he wanted to lift me. And he said, I'm so excited. I'm glad, you know, you, you stayed here. As I've said, Jason became a Uniting Church minister and later the moderator of the Uniting Church in Victoria and Tasmania. And here he talks a little about his journey and Michael Clothier reflects on observing that. So in July, I went to the minister in, in um, queue and asked him, he said, look, you're very, very late. The, the examination for the year is September, so you've got to do four courses. Old Testament, New Testament, worship, preaching, and theology. So I'll just just try. So I had a I got and and then I 
I had the examination in September and I I got 50 for one and maybe 51 for another and so barely passed the script through. While he was waiting for the High Court um, uh, decision, he, he started studying uh, his degree in divinity and he finished his degree and um, became a United Church minister and I went to his ordination, uh, which was very moving. And then some years later, uh, I attended at the uh, town hall in Melbourne for his investiture as moderator of the Uniting Church. There were five choirs. It was uh, quite a big deal. So Jason's probably the most famous illegal immigrant in Australia's history, but not many people know about it. <laughs> particular reflections on what you've observed in Australia's migration policy over the years, particularly as you live in an area where there are lots of yes. new arrivals? Yes, uh, it saddens me to know that there are people in, in worse case scenarios than me, like they, they would be refugees and asylum seekers, and I, I wasn't, I was just illegal, and Tonga is not is not regarded as uh, dangerous to go back to. It's like a paradise, I go back to Tonga. So there are people who are from countries that are actually, it's dangerous to go back and there's, there's no life there and they are really serious about staying in Australia. Even when we won our case, it was, I still have the clip that said that the Kiowa family, the government spent $1 million in the Kiowa family. So it sounded so it was a burden for me to get rid of over the years to understand that it's not me that they spend the money on it was the system so for such an old case uh, you wouldn't think it the, the, the concepts would have survived to 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 this day, but if you look at Kiowa and see how many times it's been quoted again and again by the high court. Uh, and the battles that these ministers of uh, immigration have had to try to to try to contain the natural justice rules, uh, and every time the High Court has slipped in under, you know the whole. I, I don't know whether you know much about the history of administrative law and immigration law, but Kiowa's case was just the start of the fight because then then various ministers wanted to try to claw back. Uh, natural justice. So they they codified it, they tried to limit it uh, as much as possible and that's been the fight for the last, uh, what is it, 30 years, isn't it? Nearly 30 years. Um, so what I take from it is the border is still volatile and, and government still feels they need uh, absolute control and they um, uh, so the fight's still on. You know, we, we haven't won this thing. The parliament even changed the law after Kiowa and said if you, if you were born in Australia, uh, you, you didn't get automatic citizenship. You only got it on your 10th birthday. So uh, it, providing you were still here and you hadn't been deported. So um, uh, it's, still, it's still a red-hot area of practice uh, in terms of... Uh, uh, administrative law.
So there you have it. Jason Kiwa and Michael Clothier on Kiwa and West. I hope you find it as interesting a case and as interesting a story as I do. Looking forward to joining you for episode three of In That Case. Thank you.